0: But you're in Revelation chapter 3, and I thought it was interesting. The Lord laid this sermon on my heart, and it's interesting because, um, actually, I was thinking a lot this uh, past week uh, leading up to this sermon because today marks uh, one year since I first uh, candidated with you. Back in February of 2019, if you can't believe it's already been a year, well, uh, maybe you've grown tired of me, I don't know, but um, regardless, I I can't believe it's been a year, it's gone by really, really quick. Uh, A year ago at this time, I was candidating with you all, and now I've been with you since last June, and I'm so thankful for each of you. You've been such a blessing to Natalie and I, and uh, it was interesting, one of my very first sermons... Was from Revelation chapter 1. It was one of the very first ones that I did. And uh, so, coming back to it now, I was thinking that, you know, I I would love one day eventually, uh, I'm not going to rush it because I want to take my time going through Revelation, but I would love to preach a series through the book of Revelation. But I have to warn you that I would probably uh, gravely disappoint you uh, because I would not be able to give you some sort of definitive verbatim connecting of the dots of the end times and, you know, who's going to attack who and what the little symbols mean. I probably wouldn't be able to do that, so you might be disappointed if I preach through Revelation that way. Because the only thing I would be able to show you is what we looked at a year ago, but also what we're going to look at today, which is this book is about Jesus. He's the message of these pages. It was sort of the thesis of that sermon. You, You... may not remember and that's fine. Uh, But the thesis of that sermon was the first five words of chapter 1 are what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the rest of the book is about. It's about the Apostle John getting a vision from the Lord. And that vision is such that it is so fantastical at times that he comes back to the reality that who is sovereign? Who is the true ruler over all of these times and days and seasons and events It's the sovereign king, Jesus. He's the one who has all of this in his hands. And this, as we will see here in Revelation chapter 3, this is what he is being told to write to these different churches. If you remember, Revelation chapter 1, John is told uh, by Jesus himself... To record the visions that Jesus would give him. But to also write letters to some specific churches that are in Asia. In fact, in uh, Revelation 1-4, you see that it's John, he says, writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. And that command comes from verse 11 of the same chapter. You see it where it says, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. These letters you will find in chapters 2 and 3, all seven of them. They are meant to stir and strengthen the faith of each church with what? With a revelation of Jesus. Revelation of Jesus, the true, almighty, sovereign king over everything. See him as the ruler. And here we come, in the text that Pastor Nathan read, chapter 3, verse 14, we come to the last letter, letter, the seventh letter, to the church at Laodicea. Which is perhaps one of the more famous of these letters, but it's also, I think, one of the more significant as well. Laodicea, you see, was... A large, industrious, uh, wealthy, commercial city. It it rested 90 miles east of Ephesus and 11 miles west of Colossae. I don't want to bore you with geography, but geography is important because, if you didn't know this already, this church, Laodicea, is mentioned previously in the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Here we get one of those instances in which we are made to see a beautiful connection between scripture. Scripture connecting with itself. And here a letter that was written uh, some 30 years prior to when John is writing. Here Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in, the will of, in all the will of God. For I bear him record, that he hath a great zeal for you, and for them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nympha's and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read, notice this, among you, cause that it be read also in the church of Laodiceans. And that they likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Interesting. Paul's zeal all throughout the letter of, to this church at Colossae is also a simultaneous zeal for the church at Laodicea. He was writing with a fervent passion for them to be strengthened by his doctrine. This is where we get to an interesting uh, sort of detail that, there were, that this letter, Colossians and possibly Ephesians as well, were what was called circular letters in which they were written to sort of a region of churches as opposed to an individualized church. And these letters would then be passed around for public reading. And I say this because this is significant when you get to Colossians chapter 2. Turn back with me there. I bring that out because I want you to see Paul's zeal for this church at at Colossae is the same zeal that he has for the church at Laodicea. And what is he zealous for? What is he so passionate for them to see? Well, notice chapter 2 verse 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge. Did you notice all, what sorts of language he uses when he's uh, sort of expressing his passion for this church? He's using economic language. Financial language. Which you might remember is very similar to the language that, he, that the Apostle John would later use to the same church at Laodicea that we have back in our text in Revelation 3. It's not... By accident that that occurs. Both of these letters uh, that we have here, Colossians, also simultaneously for Laodicea, and John, writing specifically to this church, use monetary language, riches, and treasures, and buy, as we have back in our text, and it's specific for that reason. It's because this church at Laodicea, this city, this people, this uh, sort of, all the, the, the citizens of this city were extremely wealthy. Laodicea was a very industrious city, very affluent, very uh, well to do for themselves. And it's clearly known, uh, if you remember, you, you may or may not, there was a, a devastating earthquake that rattled this city back in AD 60 an earthquake almost completely leveled Laodicea but what's interesting to note we can note their financial sort of pride in the fact that they resisted any sort of roman imperial assistance when they went to rebuild that city they built rebuilt their own city by their own means with their own monies they didn't want roman influence They reconstructed the entire infrastructure of their city without the aid of Roman subsidies. They were so prideful in their own wealth and abilities and success that they did so. They were affluent, wealthy, proud people. Very successful. Very well off. And such is why both apostolic letters deal with financial language. Because uh, both... Apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, were seeking, were wanting to let them see that regardless of how wealthy they were, they were spiritually impoverished. They were spiritually destitute. That their wealth had sort of clouded their faith. And that they, they, whereas they should have been investing in, as Paul says in Colossians 2, in the riches of Christ, the treasures of Christ, they'd invested in themselves. They had invested in their own lives, in their own industries, in their own success. Such is why both letters seek to remind them of where they should invest their whole entire lives. And I think we see three lessons here in our text back in Revelation chapter 3 that give us sort of the basis, the emphasis of how we can reorient this investment. In verses 15 and 16 of our text, I think we see, first of all, a lesson about spiritual work. A lesson about spiritual work. You see here, the Spirit says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He begins by examining the works or lack thereof in this church. That they weren't really doing anything. They were lukewarm in their faith. How about you? I've heard... uh, 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 several sermons, utilize this text in sort of a way to inspire spiritual passion. Get on fire for God, so to speak. You know, we hear that at perhaps missions conferences or uh, something to incite evangelism. Get on fire for God, or may it be so bold, get hot for Jesus. <laughs> it Sounds kind of quirky, that's weird. Um, <laughs> But you, you hear that. We, we sort of put these two things that the Spirit says to this church as opposite ends of a spectrum of discipleship. That you can be cold in your discipleship or hot in it. And this church was somewhere in the middle. Which is fine, I think, but I don't really, I, me personally, I don't see that in the language here. I don't think the Spirit is actually inviting them to be cold in their discipleship. I think you have to sort of uh, see it as the spirit uh, uh, trying to motivate them to be spiritually healthy. By which I mean this. That lukewarm water, they were essentially operating like lukewarm water, this church was. I don't know about you. I hate room temperature water. I, like God, want to spit it out of my mouth. (laughs) Because I find it not good at all. Cold water to me is the best type of water. A nice glass cup of ice cold water, that is refreshing. It brings some refreshing sense to my soul. Hot water, on the other hand, actually can operate as a therapeutic element. Put a little tea bag in there if you like tea, if you don't like coffee, or put it in a carafe and you can make coffee, which is even better. But regardless, hot water can eventually be therapeutic. It has a benefit. We have refreshment or therapy. Lukewarm water does nothing. It's sort of tepid. It's sort of in the middle. It has no sort of health benefit. And such is what he's take, he's saying to this church. You are either neither refreshing in your work for the Lord. You are neither therapeutic in your work for the Lord. You are sort of in the middle. You're sort of useless. You're tepid in your faith. You're lukewarm in your knowledge of the word. You're sitting on your hands. Doing nothing. He says I know your works. I know your resume. I know all of the resources that you have at your fingertips. And what has become of it has become nothing. You are lukewarm. These Laodiceans... They were more interested in their own businesses than in the business of the gospel. They were more interested in their own wealth than investing in the riches of Christ. Their own financial success had sort of made them indifferent, tepid, lukewarm towards the things of God. They possessed neither a burning zeal or an outright rejection of God. They were rather lukewarm. They were useless. They were festering. They were floundering in their faith. Their wealth had blinded them to this. Such as where we get to that verse, verse 16. They were so tepid again. They were so useless. They were so nauseating that the Spirit says, I will spew thee. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you are neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Their apathy, a direct result of their financial success elsewhere outside of the things of God, disgusted God. It nauseated him to this point where he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. Not necessarily removal of salvation, but here you can see the Spirit's passion for this church. He wants them to see the seriousness with which they had become so apathetic towards the thing of God. God despises lukewarm Christianity. A Christianity that sits on its hands. A faith that is neither cold nor hot. That sees uh, nothing with which we have to have the urgency to do. But we can just sit. Charles Spurgeon, the famed preacher over in London. He said this, 5,000 members of a church, all lukewarm, will be 5,000 impediments. (laughs) 5000 obstacles to the gospel are 5000 church members that are lukewarm. Here you can see the spirit's incisive incisive remarks on this church. That their wealth had made them laxadaisical towards their faith, that they while they were professing to know Jesus, it says here that the spirit knows their works. He knows their hearts. Which leads us to ask the question, where does the gospel rank for you? For the church, the gospel had become less of a priority. Where are your priorities? These Laodiceans were okay with the status quo. Their spiritual work, they are okay with what it looks like. And here the spirit is saying, I know your works. I know what you have left undone. But look next at verse 17, because secondly, we have a lesson about spiritual wealth. Look at the next verses. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So again, as we noted, their wealth had sort of made them indifferent towards the things of God. They were lukewarm, they were tepid in their faith. But also we can see here that it also led to an even greater and more alarming degree. It had blinded them of their need for God. Notice it says that they think that they are okay. I am rich, increased with goods. We have need of nothing. We don't need to have any sort of revival. We don't have need of any sort of uh, spirituality in our lives. They consider themselves financially, but also spiritually wealthy. They were doing okay in their eyes. In their eyes, they were uh, successful. God was obviously blessing them because they were so well off. Obviously that was a sign of blessing, right? And yet in God's eyes, their condition was very dark. You know, They think they're well off and what does God say? You are wretched. You are miserable. You are poor and blind and naked. The spirit here is saying you are bankrupt. You think you have so much to rely on, you are actually bankrupt. You have nothing on which to rely on. It had made them self sufficient and such is what Jesus is reprimanding them. Here through the pen of the Apostle John, he's reprimanding not because they were financially wealthy. It's because that, those finances had blinded them to their need of God. They'd become self-sufficient. They'd become so industrious in themselves that they thought they had no need for God at all. Such is the deceptiveness of blessing in our life that oftentimes if we don't go to God when he is blessing us successfully, we can often mistake it for the fact that we are the ones who have brought about this profitability and success. Such as what the Spirit is counseling this church. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. He is essentially saying as we will see. Uh, you need to not only pray for the Spirit's grace. But for his grace to allow you to see your need for grace too. They had no sense of that need. They had no sense of that desperation. They had no sense of how truly unworthy and needy they were. And such is again how the Spirit counsels them. Notice again verse 18, because I love I love the parallels here. Notice what it says: I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Did you notice? That everything that the spirit is giving this church in his word to them is exactly what they need to cover their condition. They find clothes to cover their nakedness. And notice that he goes to describe these types of clothes. He says white raiment. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 where the prophet says that they will be clothed with white robes and garments of salvation. Or in Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. Later on in this same book where he writes about the white robes of those who are standing before the Lord. Robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the robes that the Spirit gives to this church in the gospel. And in Him their pitiful uh, their pitiful impoverishness. Is resolved in Christ's riches. Notice it says that thou mayest be rich. Rich in what? Rich in him. Rich in who Jesus is. And he says later that they can anoint their eyes with eye salve. So that their eyes may see again. In Christ alone. They would find all of their needs met. Needs that they didn't even recognize. Needs that they didn't even know that they needed. And here Jesus is saying, all of that is found in me. All that you need is found in who I am. I am your redeemer. I am the one who clothes you. I'm the one who restores you. I'm the one who gives you all of me. And so his charge here is a simple one. It's a charge to invest in who I am. Notice he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold. Buy is the same word for redeem or to buy back. And essentially, his charge to this church regarding spiritual wealth is to invest in the gospel. Invest in the good news of who I am. The one who clothes you. The one who restores your sight. The one who redeems you. The one who buys you back through my own offerings. Invest in me. In the spiritual wealth of my good news. But this leads me to the last point. Which comes in the last couple of verses. Which is a lesson about a spiritual welcome. Notice verse 19. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. All of these disciplinary remarks so far are here, as you, we can see, are bathed in this love that the Spirit has for the church. He's not lamb this church because he wants to see them be brought down. He's lovingly rebuking this church. As he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. I discipline you. I write these words that are hard to hear perhaps, but they're to stir your hearts. This love, as it's here in verse 19, is indicative of a very deep and passionate affection for this church. He's not laying down the law, so to speak. He's coming in as a loving father, as a parent would come alongside a child. Reprimanding them, yes, but reprimanding them out of the sense that the love that they have for them cannot be taken away. It cannot be severed. He cannot unlove them. He's loving this church. He's loving them and rebuking them and seeing that they might find him, their heavenly father, their spirit who loves them as their true treasure. And notice what he does. I love the fact that he rebukes them. He calls them again to repent there in verse 19. Be zealous therefore and repent. And notice how he does so in verse 20. Because he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Here, he is inviting them. He's following up his correction of this church with an invitation into fellowship with him once again. He's inviting them to come and dine with him. But I'm enamored by that picture. Verse 20 to me is just an incredible picture of Jesus inviting us to eat with him. We have to see what sort of the wordplay that's going on here. Because it's a beautiful image of repentance. Repentance. A beautiful image of what happens when we likewise repent. That we too are made to fellowship with the Father once again. That relationship is restored. We can dine together, fellowship together. But notice that word there. I will come into him and will sup with him. And he with me. To me it's a stirring reminder of what the gospel gives us. It gives us Christ himself. Because I can't think of that word without being immediately reminded of Luke chapter 22. We're going to read it in a moment when we take communion. And we read it very often. But Luke chapter 22, of course you might remember, is the scene where Jesus and the apostles are in the upper room. This is the last supper. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he breaks the bread here in this chapter. The same word. Luke chapter 22 verse 19. And it says that he took bread and gave thanks and break it. And gave unto them saying this is my body. Which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper. Saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Same word, sup and supper there in both cases. And maybe I'm just seeing this. But to me, I see a very intricate link between what Jesus offers us and invites us into and what we have before us here this morning. That when Jesus restores a soul, he invites them to come and see himself. Because the good news of the gospel is that he gives himself to us. That he gives his body in the stead of ours. That he gives his life in the stead of our death. That he gives his blood in the stead of our blood. It should have been ours that was shed on that cross, but he sheds his own for us. It should have been our body that was broken and ripped apart because of our sins, but it was his that he gives to us. It should have been us on that cross, and instead he took our place. And he advice us to remember that when he restores fellowship, it's a restoring of union with him because he has given himself to us. He has given his body to us in the covenant of the gospel. In the covenant of the good news. And this is how he stirs this church. He stirs them to remember what? Remember that he has already paid the full price for their sin. That their repentance is based on an absolute assurance of salvation. An absolute assurance of absolution. Because Jesus' blood has already been shed. And this is how the Spirit ter- stirs this church, this church at Laodicea. Their true treasure, it's in Christ. It's in Christ's body that they could remember that was, was broken for them on that tree, given to them in the gospel. That this body that was broken it shed blood. That now is their true and better treasure. Their eternal fortune. And this is the great remedy for this lackadaisical church. A remembrance of Jesus' bruised and bloodied body that's hanging for them on the cross. Remember that scene. Remember what he did. Remember what he accomplished. John and Paul are likewise saying in unison, remember that scene and you will be restored and you will be moved out of your lackadaisical, lukewarm faith. I cannot help but see the parallels between this church and modern 21st century churches. I can't... It's so easy to just come to church and that this is the peak of your spiritual devotion and discipleship for the week. I speak to myself about that. I grew up in a pastor's home. I was in church a lot. I didn't always take it seriously. I didn't always have the urgency to approach the word like I needed to. As if it was truly a serious matter. In which kings and kings and and conquests are going on. By a Messiah who has invited us into this cosmic conquest over sin. We can see it as just a a nice lecture on Sunday mornings. And we can become comfy cozy Sunday Christians. Who come to church on Sundays and that's it for their relationship with the Lord. Here. Here. Paul and John are saying the same thing. There's an urgency with the gospel, and what are you doing in light of it? There's something happening when the gospel is preached. How often are you preaching it? There are lives and souls at stake. It should be on the tip of our tongues. Him, uh, here back in Revelation, he's saying the same thing. I would rather you be cold or hot rather than lukewarm. What are you doing for the sake and the cause of the gospel? Is it an urgent thing in your life or is it something that you've become lukewarm with? The glorious good news is that the invitation is given to everyone that's here this morning. The invitation that the Spirit gives this church in chapter and verse 20 is the same inv- invitation to everyone. If you are saved, unsaved, who, everyone is a sinner so everyone gets this invite. Come and have me. Because I've given myself to you. Come and dine with me. And here you see, this is the welcome that we're given in the gospel. It's Jesus himself. He invites us to dine with him and dine on him. He is the welcome of every sinner to come and find a rest. A rest in his blood. A rest in his atonement for them. A rest in all the things that he has accomplished. He stirs sinners to that restoration. He stirs believers to that renewal. Invest in me. Invest in what my word says. There is no greater thing that we can spend our lives for, that we can give our lives to, than this good word of the God, the word of the gospel. As it says in verse 14. The word of the amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray.